Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is episode 10, I think. We have, as usual, I'm Eric Caparo. We have Eric Franchi, and our special guest today is Brian Weiser from Madison and Wall. Brian, thanks for being here. Actually, it's Brian Weiser, but uh, I'm very happy to be here. I'm a terrible host. Uh, before we get You're started, fantastic host. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Brian is going to have some really exciting things to talk about. Before we get started, let me just do a little PSA. This podcast is getting very popular in the advertising world. If you could, leave us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and help us grow the audience so that more people can hear this. Uh, someone described this podcast to me as like the Professor G podcast, but not wrong about everything. I thought that was pretty accurate. Thank so, you. Thank you, whoever that is. That you can't get better than that. Brian, you're off to you've been around for a long time doing in-depth analysis of the advertising world uh, with sort of a financial bent. Now you're off starting your new thing. Uh, so tell us about it. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. I love the podcast. it's uh, it's one of the only ones I listen to regularly. So yeah, no, I'm uh, as some of you may uh, be aware, um former agency person, former investment banker and analyst, and, uh, and now I'm doing independent consulting. You could call it fractional employment by other means, but uh, basically Madison and Wall is uh, is a consultancy, and it's me right now publishing research, which is really just me organizing my thoughts and giving you something that's uh, more accurate than something that Professor G says. Right. Well, it's it's more than uh, just publishing some research. You, you go pretty in depth um, with the financial bent. Is is the basis of the consulting and the writing intended to be for investors, or is it also operational? No, I mean, actually, operational is probably the primary uh, stakeholder uh, set that I'm focusing on. You know, I obviously understand how investors think more on the public market side than the private side. But to the extent that I, I am a CFA charter holder and I've always had a um, you know financial bent to how I've looked at the world, what I do is that I can help explain to a company, an operator, how investors think or are willing to think if only... The operator can persuade them, and right? <laughs> but that's actually—it's really, really interesting how afraid companies are of their investors. I think. Why is that? I think that they've been trained to believe that investors are focused on the quarter. They interact with investors who don't know their industry and think, "Oh my gosh, these are the people with the money I have to persuade." You know, it's intimidating to people who haven't come from that world. Sometimes that what I observe is that uh, executives are maybe as afraid of their boards who are in turn afraid of investors. And I think that a lot of this comes from a lack of understanding that investors don't want to have to focus on a quarter. Investors don't want to have to focus on the short term. They want to be long term, but they're not typically given good reason to be focused on the long term. So post uh, acquisition of Undertone by Perion, um, I spend a good amount of time in a quasi investor relations role. And um, yeah, it was it was pretty fascinating, and I think it, this might be somewhat of a ad tech centric thing. But to your point, Brian, the number one issue was just um, uh, investor education. So if the investor got it, then they could be more focused on the long term and differentiation and secular trends. But if it's like potentially a new investor or one you're sort of like pitching on the stock, it becomes challenging because I think there's a, still a steep learning curve um, with respect to how these businesses operate, how they make money, the sustainability versus, you know, Google, Facebook, Amazon. I think the education piece is pretty tough, and that's why, um, yeah, that's that's why it's hard because you just need to spend a lot of time doing it, and you know, amongst everything else, you have to do as a public company CEO. 
For sure. Well, and, and I'm just going back to then what I'm trying to do, and I, I've already had one engagement where I've uh, I've worked on this, uh, where I, I think I can help companies both refine what their strategy is, help them figure out what their superpower is, and refine where the opportunities are. Because I am the creator of two of the industry's three main data sets that people rely on for you know the health and future trajectory of the advertising industry. So I'll claim to know a thing or two about that and how to think about TAMs and you know, assumptions that are embedded inside those assumptions. And so basically helping companies figure out where their opportunities are and balancing that against what the uh, investor story is, whether for public or private, I think is uh, probably a sweet spot. But I think that there are other, you know, conversations I'm having with companies that are maybe a bit more operational in terms of figuring out opportunities for those companies to grow. So can you, can you name check the two data sets that you mentioned? Oh, so I worked for a Magna Global, which is part of Interpublic. And I uh, basically blew up the data set that basically everyone had been using for decades, completely recast it and, uh, you know, helped uh, bring aboard a successor, uh, Magna. And uh, he, Vince Letang, is amazing, did, has done great work. It's his data set at this point. But the historical data, you know, I, again, I set the framework that, that I think is uh, still in place there. And that's for um, but global I, advertising spend. Yeah, global advertising, exactly. And that was... Um, Back in uh, 2010, 11, I left. And then uh, I was at Group M and so did WPP from 2019 until January and uh, basically did the same thing. And so that data set for global advertising has basically the same framework and same logical underpinnings. Yeah, I want to get to global advertising projections in one second. Uh, but back to investors being scared of ad tech or not understanding ad tech. It feels like the perception of ad tech goes through this sort of peak and valley on Wall Street. You have kind of the rocket fuel era and then the crash, and then you have the magnite worth $10 billion era, and now we're back at a crash. Is there something special about ad tech that makes Wall Street um, a little schizo on the subject? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Back in the rocket fuel era, investors didn't know how to spell DSP. Like, right. it was just one of those things where I still remember the, 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 within a week, rocket fuel and Critio went public. Right. And I wasn't covering either of them. They were too small for me to focus on given what I was doing. But it was like, okay, this is like a ludicrous situation. Rocket Fuel and Critio are fundamentally different in terms of what they should be valued at, yet they're valued at the same value. And what I observed was a month later, Alibaba went public. Remember Alibaba, right? Slightly bigger company. Yeah. What I saw from my clients in terms of the time and effort they put into Alibaba and it, it was light years of difference. And and this is a really important story that I don't think enough people appreciate. The largest investors typically cannot or will not buy more than 1% of a given public company. Okay. Right? It's just, there's all sorts of reasons why they don't want to. 5% becomes like a legal threshold in many cases, but 1% is like a lot to own of one company. Okay. If you're worth a billion dollars, what's your investment? 10 million, right? Right. Imagine... A company's worth a hundred billion dollars. What kind of investment are you maxed out at? A billion. Yeah, billion. How much work would you put into a ten million dollar investment versus a billion dollar investment? I guess depending on on AUL, but obviously, you know, for any large firm, it ends up being the the larger. Yeah, and that's kind of the bigger problem. So in the earlier days of ad tech, certainly um, there just wasn't a lot of effort put into it, either by the sell side or the buy side. I at least had come from, you know, I worked for Simul Media for a year and obviously at Interpublic, I spent a bunch of time in sort of the early, you know, pre-programmatic ad tech, understanding how a lot of that worked. 
when it came to some of the what we saw like last year where you had some really fraught evaluations, I think that was just, you know, when capital costs zero, you can see some pretty crazy things. Right. Right. So this is a combination of relatively small market cap with really complicated businesses. Yeah. And at some point, people either say, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, people either say, y- YOLO, let's invest, or they do the opposite, like, this isn't working, let's get my money back. That That's a that's a fair way to characterize it, and at least for the shorter-term investors. And there are many. I mean, to be clear, a lot of investors are focused on the short-term by trading volume, but not by assets under management. That's a critical distinction. So, you know, Right now, there's a lot of public market ad tech companies whose valuations are just awful. I was just looking up not to pick on people. There's like Ad Theorant and uh, Acuity Ads, a bunch of $100 million valuation companies where they would probably have much higher valuations in the private market. You know, really, the only company that's doing extremely well other than Trade Desk is Perion. That, uh, yeah. yeah. And that only went up since you left, Eric, more or less, right? Straight line up and to the right. <laughs> but Brian, actually, I was hoping you could comment on the low market cap companies. Are these folks dead in the water or do they go back up when when and if the markets recover some footing? Yeah, well, I, I'm not formally covering stocks right now, so it's hard for me to opine on the specific valuations. But just some general observations, uh, you know, looking at the businesses, you know, I don't know. I think that uh, there, there's definitely still some froth in how uh, investors look at some names. Um, Take the trade desk. You could look at it through the lens of investors are assuming that they can grow into their valuation. Right. For the trade desk, right? Yeah. There's no other way to justify a valuation that that the trade desk is at uh, unless you you just have a view that they're going to figure it out. And that's okay. Um, You could be optimistic. I think when it comes to other companies, you know, it's really hard to say what the right value is for a given company. I think that the small ones are are definitely in a difficult position because they won't get the attention that they probably deserve. This is generally true for any smaller company. Um, if you've only got a, a market cap, uh, even revenue base, it's in the low hundreds of millions of dollars. It's really, really unlikely that you're going to get the attention you deserve if you've got a good business. The only answer is scale, frankly, or go private. Right, right. So if they could drive performance many quarters in a row, start showing increasing earnings, increasing revenue, maybe you get someone's attention. You might get attention, but I mean, take if a business had, say, $100 million of revenue and grew at, say, the rate that the trade desk is growing, you still wouldn't necessarily get the kind of multiples that the trade desk has because you, you, know, you, you need a good story for starters. It needs to be a credible story. And then, yeah, then you need attention. <laughs> and even with attention, that kind of size, you're just, it's, um, it, it, you're not really playing in the big leagues unless you've got a much bigger business. And Eric, what's the, what's the impact of this environment on private investment? I imagine many entrepreneurs want to be compared to the trade desk, but you could also compare them to one of these, you know, 1X revenue companies. Because the you know the, the class of 2021 20, in terms of the number of IPOs and valuations was you know somewhat of a moment i think that the early stage companies you know on average never really sort of like saw the benefit of that um in terms of their valuations uh, going up because i think there's still um it was somewhat of a uh investor education issue on um, the generalist venture side and then conversely, like I don't think we've seen our valuations uh, necessarily go down all that much, just based on the the, the public market comps. 
Um, you know, there's not too many uh, Series C and Series D rounds going on right now in ad tech generally. And you know, those that are sort of like kind of being led by insiders will have the benefit of, of, of you know, sort of like supporting the companies and having inside knowledge. So I think if we saw more C's and D's, we'd probably see a similar valuation compression happening, but we're just not seeing it right now. Right. Something right. else to keep in mind when it comes to you know, valuation, it, it, it's it's often hard to say are stocks undervalued now versus were they overvalued before. What really matters in my experience, and this is just going to be true whether you're public or private, is you've got to have a basic framework for why you think a given dollar of growth is worth a certain amount of capital, right? Whatever that view is, form that view, have that view. Don't assume the market is right. The market's doing what the market's doing based on short-term gyrations. The smart thing to do is identify when things are out of whack based on your model for the future. And what that means is if you think that you can't possibly justify your valuation, that's when you raise capital. <laughs> because implicitly the market is saying, we don't know how you're going to do this, but we're going to trust that you can grow into this valuation like the trade dust did. Mm -hmm. it, it has been valued in that sense. Roku is a really interesting company to point to where I think a lot of, again, I wasn't valuing the company, but I think a lot of people were pointing out kind of the obvious, like, how is this company worth this much money? And then you remember they announced a, like a really small deal with Nielsen and the stock popped like another, was worth another $3 billion for what must've been a tens of millions of dollar revenue transaction. And what did they do the next day? They raised a billion dollars of capital. That's the right way to play it. The opposite way is to say, okay, well, if in fact we're undervalued and everyone else is undervalued. You should be buying the assets, right? And be, basically, if you have that conviction about what the right way is to think about what a dollar of revenue or dollar of profit is worth from a capital perspective, and you see the market is just undervaluing it for a bunch of reasons, you should be rolling up different assets. That's right. that's such a good point, and that's that's saying another way what I what I was sort of like saying in terms of you know companies that are at that B, C, D, or later stage that we're seeing funding happen within it's happening from insiders who have strong conviction have probably like more knowledge more histories with with, with the company and they're um you know they're 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 rolling their sleeves up and certainly if if valuations are low you don't want to raise money unless you have to so you, you want to keep going you want to even if you're running on fumes just keep it going get some profitability wait it out a year or two Sure. Unless there's a gap, again, between what it costs you to raise, raise capital and what you think companies are worth, in which case it is worth raising capital. There's a ton of dry powder out there. That's the thing. Like if you basically think that you can raise capital and it's only going to cost you the equivalent of, I don't know, 10% or something in terms of what your cost of capital is, and yet you think that assets are undervalued by, I don't know, half of what you think they're worth based on your framework for what drives value. You should be buying assets all day long. Raise capital and even at even if it means diluting, right? And buy assets. So um, let's talk macro. So uh, macro from the advertising perspective, you're you're probably most uh, profound thinker on this subject, and I'm really confused. Uh, so I thought we were in a recession, which would mean advertising would be declining because advertising is very circular, and yet uh, the cyclical. Sorry, uh, and yet. Advertising is growing. I think the number you put in your last newsletter was 6%. And then to make things more complicated, the advertising ad tech companies are growing faster than the advertising world at 12%. And the holding companies are growing faster. So what does this all mean? Can you, can you make sense out of this for me? 
Yeah, and and so uh, what you were saying is is a common uh, view. Uh, meaning, a lot of people think that we have been in a recession, or we are in one, or we're about to go in one. At least people in the industry. And so, a couple of facts, and I point this out on my uh, recent Substack newsletter, Madison and Wall. So, a few things. First, we have not gone into recession in the United States. There are some countries around the world which has have, but the United States has not. You could argue that maybe the first half of last year was a recession, but it's only because of a weird quirk in exports, which would really not have anything to do with advertising. And it was, again, a quirk. And it was the first half of last year when things were really, really healthy for advertising anyways. I think that the industry talked itself into a downturn because people believed, conflated even, that high inflation would lead to high interest rates, would lead to stagflation, high interest and uh, weak economic growth. And there was just this assumption that it would be like the 1970s. It just kind of ignored that consumers are sitting on tons of cash, let alone institutions are sitting on tons of cash. The money's going to be spent. It's just a weird, weird world. And so sure enough, what we see, if you look at the data from last year, in real terms, meaning inflation adjusted, the economy was kind of normal-ish, right? It didn't feel normal, but it sure was normal when you look at the numbers. And the critical thing is that most people don't understand is that inflation in a normal-ish economy or a positive economy is additive to advertising because most companies budget for advertising on a percentage of revenue basis. So if you have higher inflation, it means you pass costs along to consumers. It means your budget for advertising goes up. And sure enough, that is kind of what we saw last year. Fourth quarter, we definitely saw a deceleration for paid media advertising. Fourth quarter was certainly weak, right. but it was still positive. But then digital advertising, stronger, mid-single digit probably. And then this is the critical thing. Ad tech, along with agencies, are really strong. And that's Why is that? Are they, is the, uh, are they taking more of every dollar? Well, you know, again, we can theorize what's going on, right? Because this is contrary to the common narrative. The data tells us that this is what happened. So why could it have been the case when marketers around the world have been talking about cutting their spending on so-called non-working spend? Apparently, all those years I spent agencies, I wasn't working and no one else is. <laughs> uh, apparently, you guys in ad tech, oh yeah, you're not working either. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> Unless you're selling media. So Eric, I guess you actually were working in Aria. I don't know. Did you ever, did Beeswax sell media? I don't think so. We were definitely non-working. Yeah, you didn't work. Okay, good. So this notion of working and non-working spending is, you know, it's kind of insulting in some respects, but whatever, it is what it is. So it's clear that the non-working spend was growing faster than the working spend. We can hypothesize the reasons for this. If you spend more money on data and tech and services, you can make the rest of your spending way more efficient. That's right. the most plausible explanation I have. So you think this is just an accounting issue that the uh, you're moving from working to non-working. And for those of you who aren't familiar, I, I, working would be the media dollars, non-working would be sort of overhead, including tech and data and things like that. It, uh, not an accounting issue, not an accounting issue. I mean, by that, it's to say, I, a marketer, have $100 million to spend on advertising this quarter. I normally spend, let's say, $90 million with, with media owners and $10 million between agencies, data, and tech service fees. Could you possibly cut the spend on the media from 90 to, say, $85 million, spend $5 more million on services, on data, and tech, 
and drive better results, whatever your KPIs are. Right. So you're saying this is an efficiency play that, I, or, or we can a, theorize that's a possibility. Yeah. But what's going on with the holding companies? I'm not by any means an expert on the holding companies, um, but they've done tons of acquisitions. They're in the data business. Is that a really important factor in this whole um, kind of strange world we're in? I wrote over a decade ago that, and I think you guys talked about this, I think in context of media math and uh, the, the bet that they made and others that the trade desk didn't make, this idea that there'd be a lot of in-housing, right? I was clearly on the other side of that argument saying that, no, it's not really going to happen, not in a major way. <laughs> so the, what what happened was, I and I wrote this in my initiation, like 2011 or 12 of the sector, um, that uh, for agencies, it's good to get paid by the hour in a world where digital is increasingly important because- It's harder. It's like way hours. harder. Yeah. Way more labor intensive. And that means to actually execute on all these digital fantasies, for lack of a better word, or digital ideas, whatever you want to do, you need to, you need more labor. And sure, the more tech you get, and again, I've only spent a year working in ad tech, but what, from what I understand about how you can have a great idea, but you still need people to patch it all together, especially the more complex uh, a campaign is. So agencies have always had that as a positive thing. It, through the latter part of the 2010s, they did have a few issues at play. I, primarily, it was the creative agencies which have had a problem. Marketers, again, not always making the wisest choices. We can argue that nothing will drive better performance in a media campaign than good creative. True. And yet, marketers have been cutting their spending on creative consistently. That hurt all the traditional creative agencies. And that was probably the biggest single drag on what we saw between 2016 and 2020. And we can talk about a bunch of other factors and were the, you know, that were rebates an issue or not an issue and all that. But that the biggest single issue was the cuts in spending on creative. And I think that's kind of normalized at an industry level. So that's the first thing. The digital spending means more services broadly. And that's probably been the best uh, single factor driving the health of the agencies the last little bit. I think creative has been in-house to some extent, not the big creative, but the day-to-day. There's companies like Oliver that do in-housing of creative. A lot of it has. It's And it, to be clear, there's a lot of good stuff, but it always was. And what about ATT? Uh, so ATT hit Facebook and several other, uh, I'm talking about Apple, ATT, hit um, Facebook and several others pretty hard, brought their revenue growth to a standstill maybe. Uh, YouTube's not growing. I don't know if that's a factor. Like, is that something that is a sea change that we should be looking out for? Or is it just another detail in this big, messy situation? Yeah, um, I, I, I would argue it mostly just a detail. You know, I, I in my former podcast this week, next week, which no longer uh, is being made, you know, early on, we uh, uh, referenced uh, comments that Facebook was making about, um, you know, how they're being hurt by AT&T. And then they're being hurt by TikTok. And, and I, I, I did liken it to, you know, Erwin Mainway. Remember the bag of glass and just, you know, trying to distract everyone from, uh, from what was really going on. It was a, a convenient thing to point to as a problem for anyone who was underperforming for one reason or another. I don't doubt for a minute that there was a modest, like single digit kind of impact for some companies like Facebook. Right. I don't doubt that there are some marketers who would have found that their ability to target were impacted uh, and that their overall efficiency was impacted. 
But when you think about how most marketers manage their advertising budgets, the use of data just helps improve where the spending goes or changes where the spending goes, but the budgets are typically set independently. That's not true for every D2C brand out there, but that's not necessarily driving the industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, the best estimates I've seen is from Eric Sufert, who's a contributor to Marketecture on his excellent blog, Mobile Dev Memo. And I think he puts the impact on Facebook at somewhere between 7 and 9% of revenue. I don't agree with that at all. I don't agree okay. with that at all. I think I it's a low single digit. In love to have a cage match, have you both on. <laughs> no, the reality is that when you, talk, when you, when you think, about, think about segments, different segments of markers. So let's talk about large brands and small businesses. Okay. Typical small business in the United States has about a million dollars of revenue, about $10,000 of an advertising budget, two and a half employees. Okay. Think about how they're managing their advertising budget. Do you think that the ATT changes had any impact whatsoever on how that business, $800 of spending per month, how they allocate their resources? No, absolutely not. But they may have been unable to fulfill the exact same budget they filled on Facebook and Meta the previous month. And if you have millions of people whose budgets are being cut by a couple percent, uh, and, yeah, a couple and percent. big advertisers who maybe a bit more. Large advertisers, I disagree. I don't think any of them made any meaningful changes because of it. Uh, I'm not an expert in this area, so let's uh, <laughs> let's uh, call it a mystery. Um, I have one last question, which is: if you buy um, a media buyer like a really expensive pair of denim jeans, is that working or non-working, Capital? <laughs> I thought that kind of got rid of that after uh, all those articles in the mid 2010s. Eric, what do you think? <laughs> uh, that's not. <laughs> it is not working media. It is not uh, classified as T and E. No, you, it, when you were in the game, when you were at an ad network, you had to approve some of those expense reports, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> what was the worst thing you saw? I've heard of, uh, you know, um, very extravagant dinners. I've heard of jeans parties. Jeans uh, parties. How about the yeah. apple picking parties? I loved reading about those. I, I've not seen that. Um, you know, Is that Apple devices? Uh, I yeah. imagine. And not Apple oh. fruit. Again, these are just things I've read about because I wasn't. Yeah, these are things that I've read about. Nothing I've, I've, I've been a been a party to. You know, I've, I've heard of um, excursions to the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's there's uh, no shortage of um, T and E that uh, historically has you know been been part of this whole thing. Definitely a lot more sexier than uh, venture capital. Uh, yeah, so I've heard. <laughs> so I've heard. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the news of the week. Uh, it started out as a slow week, and then I started keeping adding things to our little digest of things to talk about yes but it was not a slow week because there was a very important company launch this week so there's this like classic question uh that folks uh, in advertising like, like to like to ask um which is like what's the last ad you remember right it's a it's a head scratcher sometimes there's like a canonical tv ad maybe from the 80s or something like that that you know folks tend to point to I would argue you could probably ask the same question around uh, product launches. Maybe a little bit less sexy, maybe a little bit more sort of like B2B, perhaps B2C. But if I say what's the last product launch you remember, you know, likely it's going to be Steve Jobs standing on stage with, uh, with with an iPhone. So about 18 months or so, a um, smart, experienced entrepreneur came to us and said, hey, I think that there's an opportunity here to actually build a product, but a platform to help systematize and improve product launches. Because in my experience, product launches are either, number one, horrible, and they just get rolled out and nobody sees them, or on the other side, they're backbreaking. 
and because there's no process and you know who owns what and everything like that. So I was very pleased to see that company launched this week. And it's called Launch Science. Uh, my fund is an investor and Ari is the founder. Tell us about it. Wow, you really laid it on thick over there. I appreciate the, uh, the you doing my bidding for me. Yes, uh, Launch Science came into beta uh, this week. Uh, you should go to launchscience.com, sign up for the waiting list. It's a platform for helping companies to launch and commercialize new products. And it's a it's a real problem. You know, I've spoken to tens, uh, maybe 50 total folks who are in charge of commercializing new products, and they have a real problem doing it. It, it does beg the question about whether you know, this podcast is my side hustle or that's my side hustle. I guess we'll have to, we'll have to wait to see which one gets bigger faster. But yeah, I'm very excited about it. And I appreciate Eric, you bring it up as well as being a, an investor. So let's get back to ad tech though, because that is not ad tech. So a lot of, a lot of interesting news this week. Um, one thing I just saw uh, yesterday was that the Walmart CFO said they're going to make more profit from ads than from selling stuff in a couple of years. Um, now, I've heard this before from other companies, but Walmart, including Amazon, including Amazon, Walmart's pretty big. They've got a lot of stores. Um, I guess the key word in that sentence is profit, uh, mm -hmm. not revenue. Brian, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that uh, when we think about where they're focusing, I mean, obviously the advertising angles, what we're, we're thinking about Walmart Connect and otherwise, I, I, you know, there's huge opportunity for them. I mean, clearly Amazon's leading the way in terms of what's possible for retailers to generate revenue from advertising. Now, you know, I'm not an expert on retail. I wouldn't claim to be one. I, um, I don't know that, uh, you know, we know that they've, they've, they've tried to move into uh, financial services and different retailers have, have done the same. There are plenty of other services that, that retailers can be a hub of. Um, I, d I don't know, uh, Walmart's story well enough to know to what degree they're counting on connect versus other services though. Yeah, it's um every time what Walmart talks about um the ad business on the on the senior level, right? CEO and, and CFO, it's almost like they express wonder at this like business. It's like where where have you been all my life? And I <laughs> right, and and I think uh you know the 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 profit thing is key, right? Um and you know in, in that article, the Reuters article, we can put in the show notes. You know, basically the 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 expectation is that advertising related profit margins are 75 to 80 percent and then overall core margins for walmart is 24 percent. so obviously if you've got you know a fast-growing advertising business you've got plenty of room to grow and companies like amazon and google in your sites you feel like there's a real path there but i think it's no surprise that they're just basically taking you know a lot of the narrative that uh, amazon has been championing and if they're competing directly with them in every way the advertising is going to be no exception. I think it's uh, interesting. I, I was also listening to Vizio's uh, most recent earnings investor calls as well, and you know they they can make a similar claim in the sense that the, all of their data and advertising products are such high margin businesses compared to you know the core uh, legacy, if you will, uh, TV consumer electronics manufacturing business. So I think that wherever you see opportunities to apply advertising as a service. I mean, when it can be such a high contribution margin activity, it, it, it's a no-brainer to try. Whether or not they actually make all the continuous investments that are needed will always be another story. I was just going to say, Walmart has been in the retail media business for over 10 years. They had a very deep relationship with Triad Media, yep. uh, which was acquired by WPP, sort of in the pre-programmatic era. It was very much about sponsorships and, you know, you take over the 
page that was about Father's Day with your golf club ads and stuff like that, but it was very lucrative. And then they ended that relationship and sort of in-house it all and went quiet for a couple of years, and now they're just back in full force. Eric, you were going to say something? No, I just said a comment for Brian. You use a term like um, applying advertising or, or applied advertising. I think that's um that's a really good term. And, you know, there's like people talking about everything is an ad network, you know, that had to, to, to Eric S or, you know, first party data networks. I think this concept of applied advertising um, is, um, is important, right? Because, you know, it's not one size fits all retailers versus non-retailers, so on and so forth. Um, and applying advertising to your model might not be the be all end all, but can certainly be, you know, a great growth vector, a great way to experiment, uh, you know, have more from a user experience perspective, and obviously, you know, tap into some of the media plus data revenue and margins that are extremely attractive. Yeah. Well, like Uber is a, another good example, right? Where, right. I mean, we love talking about that one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think for the, you know, food delivery makes perfect sense. Um, now, can they make it meaningful? I don't think they've made disclosures about it uh, to, you know, what share of the revenue comes from. Uh, you know, in car experiences, uh, I was just in one yesterday where they, you know, the driver had a, or, you know, some sort of screen and, uh, it sounds like it was provided by the company. I, I don't follow Uber or Lyft very closely. But- no, no. At this, at this point, um, actually a former investment of ours is the leader in that. It's called Octopus Interactive. It's owned That's by the one. Um, Uber and Lyft, it's somewhat controversial about putting things inside the cars because Uber and Lyft drivers are contractors. They're 1099s. They're not employees. They can't say, hey, you got to put our screen in the back there. Then it becomes a little bit of a, you know, a battle of, you know, who's got the best offering for the drivers, which I think is a, is a good thing. And there's also top of car where, um, yeah, that's where Uber I think is going to, yeah, it's different by uh, local regulation. Some places it's a monopoly, like in New York, there's a single deal for all the uh, taxi tops and Uber is participating in that, but not running it. Um, so it's pretty interesting, complex business there. While we're on retail media, another uh, minor deal that might have a lot of people might have missed, uh, which is Critio did an acquisition of a company called Brand Crush. I don't know very much about this company. It's a shopper media company. Uh, but what I think is interesting is they do a lot of offline shopper media. So they will do on-premises, things like pop-ups and uh, product sampling. Uh, and they do in-box, so uh, advertisers can put their samples in the boxes that are being delivered in a logistical form. Kind of makes me intrigued. I don't know very much about this. Did either of you catch your uh, eyes on this? I did, and I think that your the, the way you're thinking about it is the is is the the, the right way. Sampling, uh, product distribution, codes—that's just a way to capture more first-party data. Right. So if you start to think about that in the context of Critio's core business, their ambition to you know be more and more of a of a of a player in, you know, all things retail and then have additional touch points they can use to uh, you know, tell a story about closure loop attribution, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, there's also a long tail of advertisers in retail media, uh, because retailers often have a lot of SKUs and you may have a problem where digital is not big enough. Um, and you want to give them a package that includes a lot of other things. So that might be right. an exciting thing on the advertiser side. Yeah, yeah. the other thing is keep in mind uh, the the broader relationship that if you're a Critio uh, or anyone pushing in, in retail media, technology is trying to pursue, right? So versus Citrus Ad versus uh, Promote IQ inside of Microsoft that, uh, you know, you want to make sure that if you're going to, if, if a retailer is going to pick you as their primary partner, is there something else that you're adding? Right, right, Exactly. Other news, um, 
So Jeff Green uh, from the Trade Desk, he's the only person we talk about almost as much as Elon on this uh, podcast. Uh, <laughs> so he's um, on the warpath uh, against Google. He's been posting LinkedIn. He wrote an op-ed on The Current. So uh, a side note, a little public service announcement. There's a website called thecurrent.com. It's cool. It writes about Google and how evil they are. That's really just a blog that's owned by the Trade Desk. It's, it's not a real publication. Uh, it's a internal publication. So nothing wrong with that, but let's just be clear. It's not a journalistic outlet. So he writes that, uh, you know, looking at Google antitrust is only the start. Uh, you know, it's the biggest behemoth holding back innovation everywhere. And then, uh, you know, open path is um, nothing to worry about. And uh, they're the good guys. If I could summarize his various posts this week, I guess, uh, Brian, you've been talking about the trade desk a bit. Like, um, is this is this rational, the way they're using PR to try to make their points against Google? I mean, it's as good a time as any if you're them, right? No, I think that, I mean, the the, the battle for them could be fought either in, in the U.S. or Europe or both. And obviously, they're much bigger in the U.S. And, you know, it's just easier, if you will, to get a message out or reinforce a message that maybe, uh, you know, a Wall Street Journal or New York Times or Washington Post picks up and uh, amplify the points that they've been making. If... DoubleClick were forced to spin out its sell side. So as a reminder, the Department of Justice has not asked Google to enforce any remedy against DV360. The remedies in the DOJ case are entirely on the sell side to spin out AdX and GAM. How would that help the trade desk vis-a-vis competition with DV360? That's kind of a hard question. but You know, I've, been, I've heard what you guys were saying, and that was a fantastic oral history, by the way, of uh, the, other, uh, the other episode. But... I think that it, it, at some point in over the next few years, I'm still of the view that Google will decide that they should self-deport essentially their yep. large chunks of their ad tech business. And it may or may not be the parts that the DOJ is asking for or suggesting that they might want. Uh, if they just determine their own fate by taking some kind of action that kind of preempts the whole premise of, of the case and makes big tech a little bit less big, you know, th- we don't know what shape it would take, but I do think that something like that will happen. And whatever happens, probably good for the trade desk. Well, you could argue the opposite in the sense that I think, and maybe, tell me if you disagree, I think that uh, Google's ad tech business has to be operating with two hands tied behind its back right now. They can't take actions in the same way that the trade desk does. They cannot possibly be as aggressive as they would want to be on a lot of fronts. And you have to further assume that back to how capital gets allocated in large companies, if you're that part of the business and you're trying to compete with, let's say, Google Cloud for resources, who wins in that argument today? Right. Google Cloud. If they're a separate independent company, they could raise capital all day long if they needed it. And they could invest in whatever direction they want to and would be far less restrained. Is it really good for the for the trade desk if they're out there? It might be just better for everyone for the whole sector, <laughs> frankly. I could talk about this for hours, but you know, off the top of my head, if DV360 was spun out, let's just say they would lose access to YouTube, which is the number one reason to use the product. But they would be very unconstrained around use of data in ways that they are now. Like, for example, it's pretty well known that DV360, other than YouTube, is a real laggard in connected TV. And the reason is because in connected TV, people need to use data in ways that don't kind of meet Google's privacy standards. So I could see both those things having big effects. But I wonder if the access to YouTube is really the most important thing strategically. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but I think that the thing that's most important that I've observed about DV360 
is the fact that everybody knows how to use it. Really? Uh, I mean, because the usability is there, but I, I would say after YouTube access, you would have things like combination with DCM, combination with Ads Data Hub as being kind of the killer sure. feature. But YouTube by itself, I'm just saying, I don't know that the exclusive, I'm not saying access to YouTube doesn't help them, but I don't know that it would make, I mean, obviously we don't know any actual data because there is none. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that it's the 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 driver of its uh, market position. Yeah, I, I definitely think they get they get accounts they wouldn't get otherwise, but I don't know if it's the driver and we have no idea, really. So last bit of news this is pretty minor, but interesting to point out is that YouTube is sunsetting their banner overlay. So when you're watching YouTube, obviously you see a lot of the pre-rolls or mid-rolls or longer form content, but every once in a while you see a little banner ad or a text ad that shows up over the video. And that was actually their first format. So when YouTube first monetized, it was all the overlays. And I guess 10 years later, they've realized they're not the most effective ad units. Maybe they're annoying uh, and they're going away. Uh, is this the end of an era? Uh, Eric, uh, I think you were kind of worked up about this. <laughs> I was now worked up. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it has to be the end of an era. How rare is it for an ad format to be sunsetted? It's very, um, it's the opposite of one science, right? It's like uh, sunset science. So I think, uh, I think that's interesting. I think to your point, the fact that it was the original shows how much evolution there's been. But the thing that I thought about uh, was this Pmax product that a lot of people are all, all up in arms are. So um, 15 years ago or so, after uh, AOL bought advertising.com, advertising.com like cleaned house uh, within AOL because they got access to all of the AOL ad formats. So this is like the 120 by 60 on AOL Instant Messenger that was persistent and refreshed and dropped cookie after cookie and so banners everywhere, all that stuff, right? So basically, advertising.com would you know take deals on a CPA, experiment across all of the different portfolio formats um, across uh, AOL, and then just drive performance. Pmax is the modern day version of that. I think with a little bit more transparency. So it surprised me that they would sunset a product because that means that like literally nobody's seeing value out of this. People just like click it off out of habit. So um, I thought it was interesting. The fact that they're sunsetting this product, sunsetting the, the first product, having a performance-based ad off, it just means the thing was like completely horrible and not even worth running. Yeah, it's a good way to put it because Pmax, otherwise known as Performance Max, is Google's program where it's like, just give us the money, don't ask questions. And it apparently produces amazing results because when marketers ask questions, results go down. That's just generally one of the rules of thumb, I guess. Uh, I think it's the most. It's like it's it's the it's the most fascinating part of Google to to me and my sort of like niche interests right now. Um, the fact that they've revived Ad.com with you know the entire Google platform. It must be fun to be the GM of that. Yeah, it's also interesting that you've got, in the old days, you had cookie stuffing where, like you said, if you cookied the user at the exact right time, you'd be able to claim attribution credit, and that uh, informed a lot of these algorithms. And it's not great because that didn't necessarily cause real... Oh, no, it was... Yeah, it was argu arguably fraud. So I guess I wonder if we're if Google's no longer using cookies and last view for attribution. They're using AI for attribution. I wonder if the AI that places the ads in different places is unwittingly gaming the AI that does the uh, does the attribution. And I bet no one would ever be able to tell either. Maybe the AI could tell and it's not telling. <laughs> well, how do you know? We, would you be able to trust the AI? If you have the AI, if it caused an attribution, it would probably... Is that a AI. modern Turing test? 
this is the Spider-Man beam of Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. Yeah, AI. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, sentient chat GPT that's basically a media planner. On on that note, I think we're going to call it. Uh, so, Brian, thank you. This is a great conversation. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.